0: Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville. Smithville. Local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332-4495 for delivery.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Stan Jastrzewski, who's the news director of WFIU. Our topic today is how to protect yourself from identity theft and how— that trend has manifested itself in southern indiana we have two guests in the studio one a returning guest distinguished professor of law fred kate from indiana university fred's also the director for the center for applied cybersecurity research and computer science professor manakshi gupta is here with us today for her first time on Noon Edition. If you have questions or comments, you can phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can send your uh, email to our our website, um, www.wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. How many times have I said that over the weeks? (laughs) And we're also uh, at Noon Edition on Twitter. So thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks Thank for coming you back, right. Fred. I guess you—we uh, didn't scare you away last time or anything. I
2: love being invited back anywhere. Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, we—you uh, know—we could talk about Michael Jackson today. That's that's the big news uh, of the day. Every place else, but we're not—we're going to stay stay away from that. Um, we're going to talk about cybersecurity and how to keep yourself uh, safe and. Um, Fred, we've talked about this issue before and I, I, I have to jump right into uh, what's going on at the federal level because uh, President Obama announced his, his ideas for keeping people safe and uh, I have this press release in front of me that says that Obama's cybersecurity response disappointing in scope according to, to you, Fred Kate.
2: Uh, that, that's true. You, I mean the, the news here is both good and bad. Uh, On the one hand, we have a president who uh, really uniquely among all of his predecessors is taking cybersecurity very seriously. One of his first acts in office was to launch a 60-day White House cybersecurity review, uh, what they call a blank slate or a clean slate review where they looked at absolutely uh, everything. Um, uh, That was finished in April and then uh, just two weeks ago, the president announced his uh, response to that review. The, the bad news is that while this president really gets it and he understands the importance of it, he still seems uh, somewhat caught up in the politics of not wanting to take sort of the decisive actions necessary to deal with it. So for example, uh, one thing he said is that um, further regulation at least for the moment is off the table. Well, it's very hard to think of any area where we actually get an improvement across the board in industry and, and human behavior without a little bit of a – Regulatory incentive to do so, so so that was a bit of a disappointment. The other is that although he 's announced he 's going to appoint a cybersecurity coordinator, uh, here we are six months into the administration, and we still don 't know who that person is, and that 's going to be a big question. I mean the devil's in the details, and if this is a high level person, that may bode well that 's it's a low-level person, it may suggest this may become a backburner issue. Trevor mm-hmm. Burrus Well,
3: is it not automatically a backburner issue when you're talking about things like an auto bailout and a bank crisis and an economy brought more broadly in recession? I mean, aren't there, aren't there bigger, more
2: important things the Obama administration
3: can and should be worrying about?
2: Well, it's Well, it's a matter of perspective. I mean, on the one hand, I think the answer is yes. And in fact, one of the things the administration does deserves great credit for is how many issues it's thrown itself into, uh, you know, wars on two fronts and economic issues and, and so forth. On the other hand, if you think about how consumed we are with economic and national defense and homeland security issues, and cybersecurity cuts right across all of those. So we're treated almost weekly now to a major uh, you know, New York Times or Wall Street Journal front page story about some major corporation that's network has been infiltrated by Russian mafia or by Chinese uh, army hackers. We know we have serious threats that are siphoning off not just personal information but proprietary data, health information, trade secrets, national security secrets. Um, many people, including the FBI and the CIA and folks who you know, we might care about what they think about these issues, identify cybersecurity risks as the number one national security risk facing the country. So when you think about what we're spending in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, what we spend on cybersecurity in this country is a little more than one day of what we spend each year in Iraq. We, we seem to be a little bit out of balance. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Manakshi, you, your uh, research is in computer networks and security and how how, how a lot of this uh, crime is being done. Could you talk about that a little bit?
4: So I think of crime as sort of uh, starting at your own uh, computer, the problem of identity theft. One of the things you could do is to make sure that you don't log in as admin. You, use a, uh, you choose a strong password. Um, because there are a lot of people who would try to infiltrate into your computer and use your computer, not uh, not only steal information from your computer as you type into websites and such. For example, you go to a bank website and you put in your uh, login and password. There could be a software program called a keylogger could be looking at all the strokes you're typing and siphoning that information off to the miscreant. So that's for personal level. Also, as they put malware in your computer and um, make it into a bot they are exploiting your machine to send spam to host all sorts of websites connected to phishing malware and other sorts of scam viagra spam, scams fake watches scams so it's very important for all of us to just uh, not just to protect ourselves but also to uh, for the common good that we do certain basic things with our computers for their safety mm-hmm. Uh, we make sure that we lo- don't log on as uh, admin. We make sure we choose a, pa- a strong password. We, m- we make sure that we patch our systems. Making sure that you don't turn on any services that you don't really need is also an important aspect of it. So computer is sort of your own machine is one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is your email behavior. We are doing quite well on filtering spam. I would say filters are effective almost to 99%. Still, there are false positives. There are false negatives. And you do see spam landing up in your mailbox. It's very important for users to realize what is the right email behavior. Never, never click on a link in spam. Typically, most of the banks and other financial institutions today, they have sort of informally adopted the policy of not – putting uh, links in your email, if they want to send some information across to you, they will typically tell you to log on and look at the messages, for example. So that's very important. So people, Mm -hmm. um, for example, people can go to Anti-Phishing Working Group, APWG.org, and there are lots of good directions for how to deal with identity theft, starting at Mm -hmm. your own machine, your email behavior, and what if it happens, Mm -hmm. the steps to
3: take. Do Do you think that the average person... Uh, your computer, my computer, at home, are involved in um, phishing or or perpetrating bots across the net, or is it that it 's more a case of people who are uneducated about this and do things that you 're describing, like clicking on links to um, you know phishing type sites from their email because they click on anything that they get uh, is it Is it a more a passive thing or is it an active problem
4: um- I would say it is a very active problem. And you and I think that phishing, detecting phishing emails is easy if you, if we are somewhat computer savvy. And that's not true. Spammers and fishers today are using techniques that is, even for me, I have been doing research on this topic for several years now, it is hard for me to quickly determine that this thing is a spam or this thing is a phishing email or not. They try so hard to look genuine and they spoof emails so well that it's very hard to do that today. Um, so, so so what happened? Well, go ahead. The third Continue. aspect is yeah. also your web behavior. So A is your, you protect your computer well to protect your personal information. B is you uh, understand basic email ethics or behaviors that help you protect your identity. The third aspect is your behavior on the web. Most of us don't realize that web is not a very safe place. So somebody selling you things at much lower prices. There's this high-definition TV you want, and it really costs $4,000. But on this website, it costs $3,000. There are a lot of such gotchas on the web today. It's very important for people to not go to sites they don't trust, not just spammers. And, you know, these fishers are doing all sorts of things to show up higher and higher in search engine rankings. So they would want their results to show up very high. And if you just indiscriminately click on those links and go and um, download an antivirus software that at Symantec and other companies cost $80, and here it is for $15, making your, uh, your dial-up connection look like broadband, all of these gotchas are there on the web, and one has to be really careful.
3: So I guess the next question is, how do you determine whom you should trust on the web?
4: Um, well, uh, one thing is use of a secure site, right? The HTTPS. You're looking for the lock icon. That's the first step that one should do. Um, no, uh, looking at your location toolbar and making sh- location bar and making sure that you are indeed at Microsoft.com. A lot of times, there will be a link in a mail that looks like microsoft.com, when you follow it, if you're not careful, on your location bar, it will actually end up saying something like fisher.com, and then they are trying to lead you to a site that looks like microsoft.com or ebay.com, but it is not. So one of the first things is, if you're giving out any personal information on the web, make sure that it is using HTTPS or the TLS protocol for web security. Mm -hmm. If there is a certificate warning, some fishers have gone a step beyond, and they will put up an HTTPS because some people are looking out for it If when giving out personal information. If there is a certificate warning, do not ignore it. If your browser comes back with the site looks suspicious and it grays it out, don't say, I don't care, I'm going to follow it. Browser technology has evolved quite a bit, and there is a lot of intelligence that goes into the browser determining, looking at a URL whether it's phishing or malware or scam related or not, and they are accurate. I would say over ninety percent of the time. So do not ignore those warnings. That's another part of it.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Our phone numbers today eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight wfiu dot org slash noon edition is the website. You can email us there. Can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. I have to back up because I'm, you know, I'm. Uh, you guys, last time Fred was here, uh, Marcus was with you, and right. I, I was terrified when I left the show about what might happen to me if I uh, clicked on anything. So I, I need to, I guess, back up and say, okay, if I, if I get an email and there's a link in the email and I'm, I'm not sure, and I go ahead and I do click on it, what, what happens to me? What have I done? What have I done to myself?
2: Well, I think here maybe the most important phrase to keep in mind is common sense. So the same type of common sense you would use if you were walking down a street at night in a strange city and you would say there are no lights. I don't see a lot of people around. I don't feel safe. So you might walk in a different direction or if you were out shopping and you saw something being offered as is that was at a ridiculously low price and you say, you know, I'm a little questioning this merchandise. I'm not going to buy it. One of the things we see is that people don't bring that sort of common sense to their internet use. So f- for example, um, many of us click on links in emails. I mean I was, I was listening as Monoxy said this and I thought, well, I click on links all the time. But I only click on links that come – in emails that come from people who I know and who I have reason to think this really originated from them. So if I get a, a, a an, an email from someone I don't know or a bulk email, I would never click on a link in it. Um, Similarly, um, about visiting websites, Um, often you have pretty good indicators this is a legitimate site. First of all, did it look like the site the last time you were there? If it's a site you visit often, Uh, some sites that you log into have now gone into these incremental login processes where, for example, Bank of America is this way. You provide them your Uh, account name. They show you a picture that you previously picked. If it's the right picture, that's a pretty good sign that it's the right site because they know something about you. They know which picture to show you. Only then do you put your password in. So it's that type of common sense. One of the problems we see on the internet is that people get moving so fast. You know, we want instantaneous service and we think that it's private because we're usually in private. We're in our own homes. We're in our own offices when we use it. And so I think one of the sort of most common sort of underlying pieces of advice is to say slow down and remember that effectively everything you do online is visible to many other people if not to everybody.
3: Mm-hmm. You noted earlier, Fred, that uh, there are Chinese hackers, there's the Russian mafia and, and I think there is a tendency to think especially in this country that – these are all problems of foreign origin or it's these, you know, Nigerian email scammers. But I think that's that's probably unreasonable to think, isn't it? Sh- shouldn't we be considering that there could be people in southern
2: Indiana who are just as guilty of some of these things? Um, I don't think there's any question about that, um, although I suspect they're probably really in Illinois, not Indiana, because people in Indiana wouldn't do that. But <laughs> – um, one of the sort of interesting things about the internet, you know, it's got that word net in it, and we, we often sort of forget this, but that on the internet we are always connected to everybody else. So, in that sense, you might think about it the way you think about a, a health virus. Um, you know, if a bunch of kids at school are sick, your kid's likely to catch it. Same thing's true on the internet. If there are a bunch of people with sick computers, you're likely to have a sick computer too. So it's one reason why we really push and we certainly do at the Center for Applied Cybersecurity Research to not only focus on sort of high-end systems. You know, can the defense department secure its network? But to focus on everybody's system because exactly like Monokshi was saying, if um, – you know, right now industry tells us about a third of all machines have virusware, malware on them. And that can cause lots of bad things. It can slow down the performance of your machine. It can steal your data. But it can also use your machine as a platform to attack other machines. And so this is really a, a battle that's going to have to be fought one device at a time, phone, router, uh, computer, network, We're going to have to fight it across the board.
3: I guess that's what I'm really getting at is can we start here in Bloomington? Can we start in Monroe County and can we build from there rather than – I think the other way – the opposite is the way we constantly think of it is we need to solve the world problem or we need to solve the US problem. Is it worthwhile do you think to think of it on a much smaller level to start and then try and build from
2: there? Well, you know, I think of it probably even on a smaller level than that. and you know, Can I secure my own equipment first? Um, again, remember that sort of virus connection though. Monroe County could have the safest, most, most positive ethical uh, um, behavior online. But if the rest of the world has corrupted machines, our machines are going to be corrupted as well. And so it's really at, at every level and I mean this is one of the important points I think President Obama was making in his May uh, uh, address on cybersecurity. It's, it's not the government's problem. It's not private industry's problem. It is all of our problem all of the time. And that's frankly one reason why we really need to get on with it. Mm-hmm.
4: So um, to add to what Fred, is, uh, what Fred was saying, we can certainly do a lot of things at just individual uh, level. You can secure your machine better. You can have better web ethics, better email ethics, and that helps quite a bit. If you secure yourself, then you're less likely to be infiltrated, less likely that your bot will be doing damage to others. So we can certainly make a difference even at individual level. At the same time, it's important to realize how global a phenomenon this is, this whole idea of, you know, the email arrives from somewhere in China, The website is hosted in Hong Kong, and the command and control for those websites that is actually directing those machines to behave in a certain way, bots, the botted machines, to send spam at this time, behave in a certain way, shut down, register a new domain to host these malicious activities, all of those command and control, half the time are hosted in the U.S. It's such a global phenomenon that we really need international laws to really combat the problem.
1: Okay, I have a couple of uh, other sort of simple questions because you, you know, you've peaked a lot of uh, questions in my mind. You know, I think about Fred. You were talking about uh, going to an email that you, if you trust the person who sent it to you. I've got an email for myself. You know that I know that I didn't send. <laughs> How's that happen? I mean, what have I done wrong to allow my name and my email? I mean, to to be showing up as obviously as some sort of a spam and.
2: I thought you were asking if you should trust yourself, and I was thinking (laughs) we probably shouldn't comment on this. I don't know, Manakshi, if you want...
4: So emails can be uh, spoofed. So by spoofing, we mean when the email arrives at your mail server, Mm -hmm. it contains certain sender information. But the emails that we are used to seeing in our mailbox have envelope information on top of it. So a spammer can specify the email is from Bob while really the email was from spammer.com. Mm-hmm. And so your mail server knows that information. But the envelope information that's put in your email could be anything the person specifies because the information that we see as sender and receiver in the email is really part of data as far as the mail sending protocol is concerned. So you have to look into enriched header to know what really was the, who really was the sender of that email.
1: At least the ones that are coming from me, I know I didn't send. But you know, I might get something from Fred that – Then you're suspicious. That's right. I'm naturally <laughs> suspicious, yes.
2: I and think, it, actually, one oh, of the ahead. areas where we have uh, um, almost the hardest problem, it's the one my mother is always asking me about on the phone. And that is where your machine appears to be prompting you to do something mm-hmm. like click here to download updates or um, uh, we want to run a diagnostic. Click here to run that diagnostic. And it's frankly, I, I would say, Manakshi, you may have an answer to this, but it's virtually impossible. In other words, you use your common sense. You say, does this look like a traditional window? Does this look like an, a traditional uh, uh, prompt? But beyond that, um, I, I would have to say increasingly my advice to people has been not to click on those. And that's a change. I mean two or three years ago, I would have said, look, if it looks like it's coming from the Windows operating system, go ahead and click on it. But we know now about really widespread scams where people – Um, uh, It's effectively a form of phishing but the idea is they're saying there's something wrong with your computer. Click here to fix it. When you click there, you actually create the problem that they've lied to you about having in the first place. Um, But this raises a tremendous issue right at the start. So then there are questions, for example, Microsoft offers automatic updates. You can turn that on. It will update automatically. Only Microsoft will do that. In other words, that's a, that's a pretty secure avenue. You're not going to have the average sort of malefactor coming in on the side and automatically updating your system. On the other hand, you give up some control for that and you know, we've all had the experience of coming in and finding that the document we left on our screen when we went to bed is no longer there because in the middle of the night, they updated the system and suddenly it rebooted and it's gone. So you know, these are hard trade-offs. It's often convenience on one side and security on the other
1: i I agree with your mother though that that's something that's always I've always questioned the other question that came to mind when we were talking about the international problem is that um it it seems like it's been six weeks, maybe two months ago I started receiving an awful lot of mail that looked like it was coming from uh, the former Soviet Union. There's a lot of Cyrillic type that is coming to me. you know I can't read it. I immediately get rid of it, but you know. Again, I wonder how these things sort of
3: begin to start showing up. Is there like how, – how does uh, – I think know, it's how, all of our mothers who finally dis- <clears throat> finally discover these things and point them out to all of us because we haven't clicked on the links. Yeah, that, that might be a, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um,
4: OK. So that's a very good question actually. So the first question is exactly how do these people get your email address? Mm-hmm. And that's important. Um, we recently did a study to find out where spammers go to hunt for email addresses. We basically posted bait email addresses on Indiana University Computer Science Department website, popular blogs, Washington Post, New York Times, and really places where a human being wouldn't find them because they weren't really visible on the screen. It turns out that uh, these spammers crawl the web all the time. You would not believe we received our first spam from an email address posted on a popular Um, uh, forum site in 55 minutes. Wow. Be very, very careful who you're giving out your email address to. I, you know, I have different accounts, and I would not give out my Indiana University account very easily. Um, And you you have to exercise caution, as Fred said, in giving out your email addresses. We also learned that when you sign up for these freebies on the web, they are trying to send you coupons and stuff. Be very care- careful mm-hmm. before you do that. They have their quote-unquote partnership agreements, so they are going to sell your information to a partner who will then spam you. So it's really important. Don't go to a forum and generally just, I really like this story, and you know post a comment, and then at the end of it give out your email address because they are watching you. They're crawling all the web for how immense the web is. They're crawling regularly. All the time. To find Are we depressing those you
1: yet? Oh, I know. I'm, I'm great. I'm fine now. I'm not, not totally depressed yet. But we're going to have to take a break. We've got a phone call we're going to come to at the end, uh, right after we take this short break because we've hit uh, half time of the program. Our phone number again, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. 811 877 285 slash And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
6: You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net, and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini-quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, wfiu.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, along with Stan Jastrzewski, and we're talking about cybersecurity today. Um, if you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855 uh, 0811 or 877 285 9348. If you uh, do call us, you'll get to talk with Fred Kate, a distinguished professor of law at Indiana University, and computer science professor, Manakshi Gupta. Uh, we have two callers already who are lined up, and uh, we're going to go to the first one. It's Bill. Bill?
7: Hello. Um, I have a uh, computer that runs Windows 98. Um, and the um, AVG software that I have for my virus protection um, has uh, been uh, modernized and they no longer, uh, the updates can no longer work on my machine. Is there another source I can find uh, antivirus software without buying a new computer?
4: I would urge you to just go ahead and upgrade your operating system.
7: Um, The the newer operating system would not work well on my computer. The the newer operating systems take more and more computer power, and so my computer would be mired in mud or molasses.
2: Well, I mean you highlight here a really hard uh, and critical issue. So I don't know that we're going to have any comfort for you other than sympathy, which is as the um, attacks get more sophisticated and more vicious, the only way that we are fighting them at all successfully is to keep upgrading the software. The problem is as we upgrade the software, it gets more demanding on the machines. It requires more computing capacity. It requires more memory. Um,
7: I'm I'm not so much worried about – you know, the problems caused by the newer <clears throat> antivirus software, um, it's the operating system is the problem.
2: But I, and, again, and, I...
7: and the um, AVG no longer, their software no longer works on, on my operating system. That's the problem. And I was wondering if there's another source I can find, um, you know, antivirus software other than AVG.
2: Well, there are many sources of uh, antivirus software. The the two I think best-selling are uh, McAfee and Symantec. So this would just be a question which off the top of my head I don't know the answer to. But you might find on their websites. Do either of those make a product that works with Windows 98? Since Microsoft has stopped supporting Windows 98, I wouldn't be surprised if these vendors have also stopped supporting software for Windows 98. Um, Um, But it's certainly worth checking.
4: Well, on the positive side, Bill, you are going to be less targeted. Um, there might only be four people running Windows 98 right now. <laughs> really, is it worse? Well, I think it's
7: more than that, but, uh, yeah, the number is decreasing. Um,
4: uh, I sympathize with you. Um, you know, if your computer has uh, is fast enough for you and the operating system works for you, it's uh, a pity that you can't upgrade your antivirus software because uh, Microsoft and any other Uh, Microsoft won't uh, support it, and um, this is a difficult situation. At the same time, I think you're safer just because you're not a popular one.
1: All right, Bill, that's the best we can do for you. Okay. All right, thanks a lot for the call. Let's go to David next. David? Hello. Hey, David.
8: Yes, I was calling uh, because I wanted to mention a very, very unsafe practice that I see uh, happening again and again. I'm a computer engineer and that is people
7: reusing
8: their ID and password, uh, at different sites and for different services. And, uh, uh, for when people shop online, go to a merchant site, many time you're asked to choose an ID and a password. People should never use the same ID and password that they're using for their email or on their home computer because if that merchant site gets compromised, then uh, you're wide open, and I, I, it's easy to do. People want to have a password that's easy to remember. I see it again and again, and I know it's resulted in some uh, some terrible results. Even money being withdrawn from a bank because the person had used the same ID and password on a merchant account that got hacked. That was uh, the same ID and password at the bank, um, and it's a very simple thing, but it's not mentioned very often that. Uh, uh, don't use the same ID and password again and
2: again. Uh, this is a, a tremendously important point. I, I couldn't be happier that you that you raised it. Password, uh, you know, management, password etiquette, as we sometimes call it, is actually quite a hard sort of issue because it's one of those again. where you have this trade off between security and convenience. So the problem with the common password is not only if somebody gets hacked, it's also that if you're visiting what is an illegitimate site, you're visiting a, a let's say a phishing site. You create an account. You provide your password. They say thank you very much and then they go use it on your credit card site to get access to your account um, so that we actually end up giving away our password in in many instances there. Um, you know, the basic rules around passwords are of course to use uh, passwords that are longer rather than shorter. So you know, probably over eight characters that combine some uh, characters other than letters and that combine uppercase and lowercase letters and that certainly are not um, a word found in a dictionary because you're immediately vulnerable then to a a dictionary attack where they literally run the entire dictionary against your your password. But let me say on the other side of this, um, if we conducted a survey here and said how many people reuse passwords, um, cars would be driving off the road because everyone would have to take a hand off the steering wheel and say, yes, I reuse passwords. Um, I I reuse passwords. Um, I suspect we all do here in in the studio. So part of it is to try to figure out whatever works for you, the individual, as a way of using different passwords, but that link to sites. So whether it's using a a common password that, that you in, then add a, a number to, or you add a combination of letters that somehow relate to that site, so that there is a way to remember it. Because alternatively, you end up with a long list of passwords, which is another gift to identity thieves.
3: You know, there are some some like browsers. I feel like. Some Mozilla products say, would you like to input this one password that you will then – that will then help unlock all of your other passwords or help you remember all of your other passwords? Does that mean this is,
2: this is you know, really, really dangerous? Um, I think it's unwise. Um, let me say there are password management programs. I mean you can go buy them. You can download them. And the way they work is they take all your passwords. They encrypt them, which is a good thing. So they, you know, they turn them into gibberish. And then you have a password on top of all of that. The danger is exactly as you have said. That is if somebody gets that password on top, they've got them all. Um, on the other hand, we're, we're all looking for management strategies here because, you know, most of us now have over 100 different uh, uh, interactions online that require passwords. And if you actually have to have a different one for every place, the likelihood that any of us are going to remember them, you know, suddenly becomes – Uh, pretty remote.
4: So to add to what David was saying, um, another related thing, um, precaution one could take is to not put your password and check remember me button when you are on a public computer. Yeah, Mm -hmm. a lot of websites will warn you against it because I shop at eBay regularly and I know they can remember me for a day. But you have to be careful and not be tempted by this convenience because if you log on and say remember me for a day, Next time someone logs on, to e- you leave the computer. Someone else goes to ebay.com, and they're in your account. Mm-hmm. So that's another related precaution to take. But, David, you bring up a very, very good point. It's, it's inconvenient to have a different password for every site. It's very important to have a different password, but uh, management remains an issue. And also choosing a strong password for each site, the, this is a non problem. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, okay. David. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks a lot for the call. And we have uh, one more call. It's Elsara?
4: Hello?
1: Oh, hi. hi. Can you tell me your name?
0: Uh, Elspeth?
1: Oh, Okay. Thank you.
0: I just want to
6: say thank you for the program. That's all I
3: have to say. Oh, well, you're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. I wanted to get back to something that, that Bill was talking about, and, and we talked about, <laughs> we said you suggested, well, upgrade your operating system, or uh, and actually you said, you know, look at... The $80 product from Symantec is not the same product that you can get for $15 elsewhere. And this all comes back to at some point it runs into money um, if you're really going to do this as well as you <coughs> possibly can. And so where do you draw the line between having to spend a bunch of money for a new computer with a uh, an, an up-to-date operating system and up-to-date virus and malware software um, versus you know, people who might be on a fixed income, and I know there are quite a few of them who are uh, in a regular WFIU listeners, for instance. We get calls all the time from people saying, We don't have all this disposable income. Uh, what are these people to do?
4: Um, well, one of the simplest things to do is also turning off your computers when uh, your machine, when you're not using it. If you are, you're vulnerable only if you are online. So if you have no need to be online, don't just leave it on all night saves you electricity on top of not having to upgrade your computer. Um, You know, our previous caller, Bill, had a sort of an extreme situation where the operating system isn't supported. But Windows, (coughs) that's Windows 98. A lot of other operating systems are supported. If your bandwidth, your dial-up connection, or uh, uh, your high-speed connection is able to give you the performance and you don't have the money, you don't necessarily – have to in- invest money in a lot of the antivirus softwares and uh, even operating systems will work on most modern machines and they don't have to be just the Sears model.
2: I think also, Stan, it, it, you know, it, there is good news here, which is on the whole, most of the products we're looking at, the prices drop every year. So replacing that computer that cost $2,000 five years ago, you're probably going to spend less than 500 today to replace it. And I understand that's not insignificant money. But at least as the um, extraordinary capability of these technologies is going up, the prices are just across the board. They're coming down. Also, there are a lot of um, either free or low-cost options. So you know, anyone associated with the university gets not only the full suite of Windows products, including the operating systems, but also gets uh, virus protection software for free, including all of the updates for free forever. Uh, it's an extraordinary um, – um, Um, offering and it's done precisely because the university knows if it wants to secure its network, it should also be securing the computers of everyone who's going to connect to its network. So I I think you would often find there are many places where you can get either low cost or or completely free products to help maintain maintain a system and then as Monokshi quite correctly points out, so many of the best security um, behaviors cost nothing. And so sometimes, you know, we use the software and the hardware as an excuse for not just doing the right things in the first place, whether it's using a strong password or turning your machine off or using common sense when visiting websites.
1: All right. Our phone number is 855-0811, 877-285-9348. WFIU.org slash is the website where you can uh, send us an email and uh, at Noon Edition is our Twitter feed. So I have a question about social networks because that's been a huge – I mean it's, it's, it's a burgeoning area. So everybody has got a Facebook account or now I, I get these invitations on LinkedIn and other business
3: networks all the time. And I, you know what, what, are the, what are the dangers lurking there? Please tell me Twitter is the most dangerous thing you've ever come across in your whole life.
2: <laughs> I just want to know if Bob's invitations come from himself or from, <laughs> other, <laughs> from other people.
4: Um, I think it's uh, it's it's important to um, not accept things that are coming from strangers, not put profiles online, um, make sure that you're making as little of your uh, profile uh, available publicly. I am myself sort of in two minds when it comes to websites like Facebook and LinkedIn. On the one hand, it, they definitely offer you the social networking advantage, and you know Who the people you are connected to are connecting to, but at the same time, these websites, including big search engines such as Google, are collecting enormous amount of information. And I know Fred would probably have more to say about that, but it worries me that every keyword search that I have done on the internet, Google has a snapshot of my life. Today, for example. Maybe I'm just getting lazy, but, uh, you know, you have a textbook. I know there is a chapter there and there's a reference I'm looking for. There's some detail on a protocol or something. It's much easier for me to just type Google. Even sites I regularly visit, it's much easier for me to just type in a keyword and it takes me there. But at the same time, I have lost something I've traded something for that convenience, which is that Google has enormous amount of information, and other popular search engines, such as Yahoo and others, have enormous amount of information. The same applies to the social networking sites. Facebook, LinkedIn, Second Life, you name it. They have information, so we have to be careful. Mm-hmm. Nothing is free. They <laughs> are giving you this connectivity, the social networking, and they learn about you.
1: All right, we have three callers who have lined up to talk to you now. So, uh, Lynn is first. Lynn, hi, hi, Lynn. Go right ahead. What's your question?
0: Okay, I was um, a victim of identity theft several weeks ago. I received a call late uh, one night from a gentleman with the last same name, which is quite an uncommon last name, who wanted to warn me that hundreds of emails were loading into his email account, which was at a very um, popular email um, at Gmail, actually, Um, and I do not have a Gmail account, and he could read my cell phone number, my home address, and he picked up the phone and called me, Um, and I, unbeknownst to me, was in the process of purchasing every, what I call, late-night TV, back-of-the-magazine subscription to vitamins and acai and skincare products and everything I never needed in my whole life. Um, was all being purchased with my credit card. He could see the last four digits of my credit card, um, but the wrong email address. So, And I also was applying for hundreds of credit cards. And the odd thing is, is all this stuff actually started to come to my house, which made me suspicious of the manufacturers that were selling these products. They were actually the active fishers. Um, within about a week or so, the whole process morphed and I started receiving items for another person's name. Um, but, and I did call one of the companies and they gave me his email address and his phone number. The phone number was incorrect um, and the email address was the same generic something at Gmail and that was also incorrect. So this person, you know, they're obviously this phishing whoever is just creating email addresses, and I wonder how this works. I do not shop online. The only thing I do is buy airline tickets. How do they find all this stuff? Um,
4: Well, the first thing is there is a lot of information about each one of us that's on the web. So even if you don't shop online, you, uh, you do other things such as web surfing, reading news, searching on Google, do you? Um, to a degree,
0: I tend to be somewhat of a luddite, but I'm not as uh, active online as it appears that a lot of people are.
4: So uh, there are really two things I can think of that leaked your personal information that has then led led to this flurry of products and other activity that are co- that are basically causing financial damage. Um, one is that you uh, might and might have in the past provided your information to uh online to you know on a website or or something like your phone number, your address, your social security number in the context of maybe a social networking site or something uh the the very first thing is there is there are a lot of public records that are available from government sites even that leak information about us, so none of us are immune from from that second is you might have given out this information, not realizing that. Somebody is uh, watching out uh, for this information.
2: Hmm. Um, look, look, this is and Fred. They just, Lem- make up, they
0: just make up these email addresses and hope that it happens to be the right person.
2: Well, l- let me just ask a couple yes, of quick definitely. questions. Did they use your real credit card number? Yes. OK. So they clearly have access – to a local bank here. Yeah. Right. So they clearly have access to your credit card number and that most right. likely came from some place where you used your credit card. But it doesn't have to be online at all. It could be a restaurant. It could be okay. a merchant. Okay. Very often it travel um, in a foreign city or a, a city outside of your home area. You'll find hotels or restaurants or common places to uh, what we call scrape credit card numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, if they open credit card numbers in your name, it means they also have your Social Security number. So, you've seen credit card applications or new cards as well? Yes,
0: but I actually called, you know, I was in a flurry of calling, and they said that they had flagged them so they wouldn't have processed them anyway because the birth date didn't match. It, you know, it made me very young. It was awesome. Um, the birth date didn't match, and they had certain. Flags that they look for. Okay, so, so and, and they said this happens to them about two thousand times a day. I was going to say
2: this is very very common. A credit card issuers uh, block about a, between eighty and ninety percent of all fraudulent credit card applications. Um, that, I mean, the good news here is Congress has absolutely insulated you from any liability. So it may be a nuisance, but at the end of the day, uh, nobody can hold you liable for anything. You should right. absolutely report it to the police. It's a crime. Oh, yeah,
0: I did. I did. And, and a lot of these companies gave me the IP address that had sent all this stuff, the, but I don't. I don't even know how. Like, who goes after them? This IP address was in California.
2: The the other just sort of practical piece of information is, um, you want to be dealing with these companies in in writing, and even though that kind of slows down the process or takes more time. Um, mm-hmm. Th- that's just a key step towards protecting yourself and also towards if the police do want to prosecute they're going to want all of that line of communication mm-hmm. um, and so you know it doesn't have to be federal express or red- registered mail or anything, but just a, a first class letter that you keep a copy of sure. um, saying i didn't make this, this isn't mine
4: um, Let me also ask you another question: How do you process your trash th- This How sounds do I like do what? A- this sounds like a very odd question. What do you do to, let's say, a credit card offer or your uh, expired utility bills? What do you do to those uh, statements? Oh, now that stuff I actually shred. Wow. So I was going to yes. say, you know, never underestimate the uh, potential of not yeah. shredding. Because uh, if, you, if you put this in, even in the recycling bin or trash, there are people who are scouring through your trash and recycling bins to learn this information. So it seems like you you don't have that problem. So the only thing I can think of, as Fred said, was, you know, giving out your credit card numbers at uh, restaurants and, you know, these businesses that are clearly not uh, operating very ethically. Mm-hmm. And then... People can to put, oh, two, uh, put two and two together very easily using this uh, big bad internet. They basically have gone with some amount of information about you, searched all sorts of Googled and searched for other kinds of information and tried to put things together. Uh, fortunately, they didn't have your date of birth, which helped out.
3: Lynn, thanks for your call. Good I, luck. I, I have one question uh, before we end our last couple of minutes here, and that is, are there cybersecurity or ID threat theft problems that we see more often here in southern Indiana? Minakshi, uh, mean, I don't know if you came across any of these in your research or whatnot, but, you know, I think we often think of high-tech problems, but you just pointed out a very low-tech possible problem as well.
4: So I have to admit that uh, I think of... Uh crime on the internet, especially web-based, uh, at such a global scale that um, I'm guilty of not focusing on southern Indiana. I mean, I' closer to home, I should know a little bit more about uh, are there differences in the kind of identity thefts that we see here? And is trash processed any differently in our county or in Monroe County, at least? Um, but that gives me some good thoughts for the future. <laughs>
2: I mean, one thing just to keep in mind there at least from surveys of identity theft victims uh, the internet's only involved in a fairly small percentage so about 11% according to the uh, January 2009 figures so while the internet is a very tricky place it is not what's causing most of identity theft victims their problem it actually turns out for people who know who perpetrated it that's that's only about 40% of victims it is somebody they know So uh, one thing that might be particularly relevant to our listening audience is it is often a friend, family member, um, someone your son or daughter is bringing into the house, a home care worker or a cleaning person who's working in your house or someone who has access to your office. And they're getting the information out of a purse or a wallet or a stack of checks. They're getting it in very ordinary uh, run-of-the-mill ways. So for all of the sort of high-tech cybersecurity stuff, critically important for reasons far beyond identity theft, but for identity theft itself, practical steps like do you know where your wallet is? Do you leave your machine logged on when you go to lunch? Uh, Do you uh, shred uh, uh, credit card offers before you throw them away? These are really vital steps towards protecting ourselves.
1: All right. We've got about uh, less than two minutes to go and I have one more phone call I want to try to get to. Jane, do you have a quick question?
5: Hi. Uh, a couple of quick comments. Okay. One, uh trick I learned from my son is uh, uh, when you receive a link in email, hover your mouse over that, and you will find out where the link is actually taking you rather than where they tell you they're taking you, which sometimes is different. I got a a link from bank of america saying i had to fill out a form to to uh... you know in my account well i know enough that i didn't have an account there but i hovered my link and it said bank america dot com dot f-t-l-p dot net which so it was really going to something dot net and not to bank of america at all the other thing is when you are invited by a friend to and and i've had four or five legitimate friends that I know very well invite me to go on a social network, I always call that friend first to say, did you really send me a link to look at pictures? Or did you really invite me to be on tagged or whatever, you know, this this website um, before I actually click on the link? Because every single time those friends have told me, no, it's not legitimate. I never signed on to that. They've gotten some Spammer has gotten into my um, email and has, uh, uh, you know, taken my directory.
1: Okay, Jane, we're going to have to cut you off here because we're about out of time.
5: Thank all right. you.
1: All right, that's all the time we have. I want to thank Fred, Kate, and Menachie Gupta for being here. Thank you, Stan. And thank you. thank you, Ariana and John, for all of your good work today. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
5: The
8: noon edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at wfiu.org.
1: Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332 2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bears Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332 4495 for delivery.